Now, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians, page 1180. We've had three weeks away from Philippians, but uh, we're back uh, there this morning. Just uh, a little reminder as to why Paul wrote this uh, letter. It's very hard for us to understand any bit of it if uh, we don't uh, get a handle on the reason he wrote it. Paul had a special place in his heart for this church in Philippi. He had planted the church some ten years earlier. They had been his key supporting church and they were crystal clear on the gospel. And he thanked God for them. But because of their gospel clarity, because of their gospel convictions, it had led them into a tough time. They were under pressure, opposition, antagonism. Philippi was a a Roman colony. It was a centre of trade, of commerce, of the arts, an urban centre, a strategic place to plant a church, yes, But in that context, in that environment, the atmosphere of Philippi, I guess, not that dissimilar to a city like Edinburgh, in that environment, this little church, the Christian community, was coming under pressure because of their gospel convictions. That's why Paul writes, for example, chapter 1, it has been granted to you, notice, a gift of God's grace, it has been granted to you not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I have. Now what happens when a church fellowship comes under pressure because of its gospel convictions? What happens when a church all of a sudden finds themselves, whether in Philippi or in the centre of Edinburgh or in China, What happens when that church fellowship, because of their gospel convictions, finds itself facing an uncertain future? Well, the greatest risk is disunity within the church. That's the big theme that Paul picks up on in his letter. He wants this church that he thanks God for to remain united. So he writes, whatever happens, Whatever happens in the months ahead, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and whether I can come and see you or just get a letter from you, whatever it is, I will know that you stand firm. So how does Paul exhort them to stand firm? In two ways in the letter. First, positively, chapter 2, he says, if you want to know how you're going to stand firm, be like the Lord Jesus, in your attitude to one another. In other words, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Be servant-hearted in your attitude towards one another. So what are we all doing individually to foster that unity 
that is necessary under pressure. Be like a servant to the others. That's the positive chapter, chapter 2. Be like Jesus or Timothy or Epaphroditus because they are like Jesus. And then in chapter 3, he takes a different tack. No longer do this, but watch out for that. That's the tack in chapter 3. Now let's read it. And let's not... Let's not be too shocked at the strength of what Paul writes. We'll see why he writes in such strong terms. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers. Notice, whenever Paul says finally, there's still a page and a half to go. Finally, my brothers, he says, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more than you circumcised, he says on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, Paul writes, and I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Now, as we begin to get a handle on what Paul is getting at here, let me encourage you to keep in mind the reason for the letter. The church in Philippi is coming under pressure because of their clear gospel convictions. They're holding fast to the gospel and to its proclamation. And because of that, they are facing a tough time, an uncertain future. Clarity on the gospel has landed Paul in trouble all through his ministry. And like Paul, they are facing a tough time because of their clarity. Now, what can so easily happen? Well, disunity. How can disunity happen? Well, we've seen in chapter 2, because the attitude of humility, looking to the interests of others, is not evident. But how can disunity happen in a church which is holding fast to the clarity of the gospel, the appearance within the church of a different kind of gospel teaching? what he's saying. 
The kind of teaching that says subtly perhaps Paul's gospel is extreme. It is radical. It is not sophisticated. Don't believe what he says that the gospel will lead you into tough circumstances. That is not normal. Listen, so this teaching goes, it needn't be like that. Here's a different message. I often wonder if the Apostle Paul would get the job of minister in most churches. Almost certainly not. How would you characterize a different kind of teaching that might just be a little more acceptable or easy? And let's be absolutely clear that the temptation is absolutely there all of the time to go for this kind of thing. Two ways, I think. One just a different perspective on the salvation bit of the gospel, the bit that makes you a Christian. How do you become a Christian? That teaching changes. And what happens when that teaching changes is that our view of ourselves as humanity is raised higher than Jesus raises it. And sin is lowered, lower than the way God views it. A different gospel of salvation and also kind of teaching that the Christian life is not how the Lord Jesus says it will be. So two years of teaching can come into a church in tough times. It brings disunity. One that the gospel is not simply salvation in Christ alone. It's not as banal as that. It's not as tough as that. Secondly, that the Christian life should not be tough. It needn't be. And of course, these are the two areas Paul tackles all over the New Testament and the two areas he tackles here in Philippi. You'll see on the sheet two points. Firstly, salvation through anything other than Christ alone is not the gospel. And secondly, the gospel is salvation through Christ alone. Let's uh, consider each of these. Firstly, salvation through anything other than Christ alone is not uh, the gospel. Now let me tackle at this point, the, um, in a sense, uh, the elephant in the room. Uh, Paul's words, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil. Paul is at his pastorally warmest in Philippians. He's just said, welcome Epaphroditus, my brother home to the church. Rejoice in the Lord always. Watch out for those dogs. Hardly subtle, is it? Savage. The point, I think, is that uh, in the ancient world, Dogs were not welcome indoors. That's the point Bible commentators bring out. Watch out for those dogs. Why is he so strong? 
Well, he tells us at the end of verse 1, it is to safeguard you. He's already written to them, it seems, along these lines, and he wants to make his point again. He wants to safeguard them against a different gospel. Why? Because he wants to guard the true gospel. Why? Because anything other than that is no gospel. Why does that matter? Because anything other than the gospel does not lead to eternal salvation. That's why it matters such a lot. It could not be more serious than that, hence the strength of Paul's words. Now, I wonder how serious we regard false teaching. I wonder how serious we regard teaching that suggests, even implicitly, that salvation is not through Christ alone. And in many ways, you see Jason and Rebecca going back to China to do what? As the church mushrooms in China to guard the gospel. So all sorts of other gospels will come in. And ironically, and, 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 well, encouragingly, it's because the indigenous Chinese church did guard the gospel in the 1950s that what is happening now is happening. Let me put it like this. Say you have a life-threatening illness and you need surgery and uh, you go in and meet the consultant in the Royal Infirmary, the person in whom you are about to trust your life. And you want to know that the person you are meeting in that consultation room knows their stuff. You want to know that they will give you the right diagnosis, the right treatment. If you have any doubts, you will seek a second opinion. If you have real doubts, you will tell somebody, and if that doctor is a sham, they will be exposed in every newspaper, everywhere. Why? Because it matters, because your life is in their hands. So, is it not also true that false teaching in the church is enormously dangerous because eternal salvation is at stake. He doesn't save us. So Paul says, watch out. Watch out. Guard your doors. Watch out for that kind of teaching to get a foothold in your church. Watch out for any gospel that is salvation through something other than Christ alone. Now, what is exactly Paul referring to that might happen in Philippi? You'd have noticed the references to circumcision in the text. The group of teachers Paul is speaking about here are often referred to as Judaizers. Uh, Paul talks about them, for example, a lot in his letter to the Galatians. And their message, their gospel, was that to be a true Christian, you needed not simply Christ. Now, notice their gospel has a lot of Christ in it. Kind of different Gospels do. They don't have no Jesus in them. They have lots of Jesus in them. Yes, they have the cross in them. But this group also had something else. They had circumcision and that was the old covenant sign of belonging to the people of God. And, and so what's going on here, what Paul is warning them against is, is the Gospel. Yes, it has a lot of Jesus in it, but there's also got this other stuff, the marks of acceptability. That you're an insider. And that is what this group of Jewish Christians taught. Yes, Christ is a part, but there's something more in addition, this mark of acceptability. And in the context of Philippine, do you see this? The, the kind of city it was, this urban centre of culture and commerce and the arts and all the rest of it, this was far more acceptable. Part of the establishment, mainstream 
It was impeccable in its credentials. It was powerful. It was religious. Paul says, very movingly, I was once the champion of that kind of thing. Notice what he says, verses 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that little phrase, confidence in the flesh, is not referring to circumcision. I think it's, it's simply referring to confidence in me as a human being before God. If anyone else, Paul says, has confidence in themselves to stand before God in judgment, confidence in their status, their worth, their pedigree, their credentials, their background, their family, their religion. Paul says, if anyone else thinks that, I've got far more than you. That's what he says. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put his confidence in all that, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, or the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Let me put it like this. Paul had impeccable religious credentials. He came from the right family. You might come from the right family. You might go to the right church. You might live an ostensibly good life. You might be engaged in all sorts of busyness in the church, or the CU, I guess. All good stuff in itself, it is. You might have all the appearance of religious respectability. You might be a minister. You might be a missionary in China. But if you place any of that stuff in your heart, that you will plead that before God on Judgment Day, Paul says, believe me, he says. Believe me. Because I met Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. You cannot place one iota of confidence in any of that. Very striking how Paul writes, isn't it? How strong he is. Notice the contrast in verse 3. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision. In other words, the true people of God, what defines the true people of God, verse 3, those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Very powerful that, isn't it? Three marks that identify you as a true Christian. You worship by the Spirit of God. God lives in you by His Spirit. Worship means not sing. It does mean sing. It means all of life. You worship because the Spirit of God is in you. You glory in Christ. And you put no confidence in your humanity. These are the marks of the true believer. Let me ask you, are they the marks of your life? Are they of mine? You know, when, you, when a preacher says that, they say, are they the marks of your life and are they of mine? It's the kind of thing you've got to say, isn't it? You kind of qualify it all. But let me ask you directly, are they the marks of your life? You know, you can recite a creed, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the, the, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I believe that, that God sent Jesus to, who, who was born and who died and who rose and who reigns. But do you believe it as a settled conviction in your heart? Paul is saying is that if your confidence is in anything else, you can have none. Why is it? Why is it that anything else 
other than salvation through Christ alone is not the gospel. Why is it not just a different gospel but all one of a pick and mix that leads you to the same conclusion in the end? Why is salvation through anything other than Christ alone not the gospel? Because it has too high a view of humanity and not a serious enough view of sin. It is a view of the gospel that does not lead me to lay hold of Jesus Christ with all my heart. For without that, I cannot plead anything before God. And it won't save you. No wonder Paul is concerned that this kind of teaching does not come into this church that he holds with the deepest affection in his heart. No wonder he's concerned. Eternity is at stake. Mark Batlock emailed me yesterday and he encouraged me to pray for this. He said, please pray for depth in the gospel in the church in China. Because that's a great risk, isn't it? Please pray for depth in the gospel in the church in Scotland. In this church. Now, Paul, as he always does, tells us what the gospel is not and then he tells us what it is. Thank God for that. The gospel is salvation through Christ alone. Verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, Paul, again, is strong here. Something important to say. Say you've come from a Christian home with Christian parents who've cared for you, prayed for you, discipled you. Is that of no value? Is that what Paul is saying? Of course he is not saying that these things are of no value in and of themselves. They are of great value and a wonderful privilege if you have enjoyed that. But do not stand before God on Judgment Day and say, Lord Jesus, my mum and dad were Christians and they prayed for me. I kind of own the faith they own. And what of good works, the stuff we do? Is that of no value? Of course not. These things are of great value in and of themselves. And if they are the product of genuine converted hearts, God rejoices in them. But do not stand before the Lord Jesus on Judgment Day and say, I did flyering on a university mission 
or I did the tea and coffee rota. Or I gave half a million pounds to the work of the gospel in China. If you think any of that is what you can lay before the Lord Jesus for everlasting salvation. And nor is Paul speaking in these verses of suffering for the sake of the gospel. He comes to that later. So when he talks here about losing all things for the sake of Christ, he's not saying that, haven't I done well to give all that up? He's not saying that at all. He's turning his back on them and shunning them in terms of what he places his confidence in to stand before God. Apostle Paul came to see what every true Christian sees is that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Not a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Jesus. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see that human beings, we are sinful through and through to the core. And the only thing that can save us is righteousness from God. There's the gospel. Righteousness from God. It's alien, it's outside of us. From God, revealed in Jesus on his cross, received by faith. Remember we did Romans, those of you who are here? We try to illustrate righteousness from God by putting a a white t-shirt on somebody. Andy had it on often as our illustration. And you put tomato ketchup on the t-shirt. You say to him, rub it off. You rub it, and it gets on your hand, under your nails, all over your t-shirt. And you touch this, and you touch that, and it's everywhere. You can't clean it up. That's us. And what the Lord Jesus does, is he gives us the robes of his righteousness. He gives us his sonship. He gives us his status, his royalty takes it off his shoulders and puts it onto ours, such that we sing alive in him, clothed in righteousness divine. Therefore, bold I approach the eternal throne on judgment day and say to the Lord Jesus, I have nothing to offer you for my salvation but I have everything because I have Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what Jason and Rebecca are going to China to safeguard. That's the true gospel. It is the gospel that saves. Is it the gospel you believe? If the answer is yes, you will be sitting here saying it is far more than the recitation of a creed. It is not my mum and dad's faith. It is mine. A deep-hearted, settled conviction that when you stand before the Lord Jesus, you can plead the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Now do you see even more how much it matters to Paul that he protects the church from something that is not that? Preaching Christ and him crucified, telling the gospel like this, salvation through Christ alone, such clear gospel conviction may well lead you or lead your church 
into tough circumstances. It's striking. I read that in a commentator this week and I thought, oh, that's true. Why have we made the decisions we have made? Because of our commitment to the biblical gospel. Paul says, do not change your message and beware of those who do. If you suffer for the sake of the gospel, do not be surprised. It is normal. And then Paul, verses 10 and 11, he's moving on to the next bit that uh, we'll look at next Sunday. But he, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection to the dead. And what he's saying there, he's talking personally about what it means to be a Christian, but he's also saying, when you get the true gospel, when you live with it, when you proclaim it, you begin to participate in what the gospel does. And the gospel brings suffering and resurrection. It brings new life. It spreads like wildfire, like in China. Why are there 100 million Bibles being printed in China? Because when the Christians in China were under pressure in the 1950s, what did they do? They did not depart from gospel salvation through Christ alone. And nor must we. And what should the final word be this morning? Well, it could be chapter 4, verse 1. It's a logical end, isn't it? Therefore, my brothers, and I said this to Jason and Rebecca in the first service, um, they've obviously gone home with their kids. You're here. What do we send you off to China with? Chapter 4, verse 1. You know this is true, Jason, don't you? All this is true. Stand firm in the Lord. That's a good exhortation, isn't it? But what's the other end of the book? What's the other bookend? Chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. The Christian life is full of juxtapositions and strange paradoxes. Stand fast. Rejoice. That's how it is. And so Paul, you can understand what he's saying. When he says, what has happened to me is really served to advance the gospel. And we'll see that is true, I think, here. We'll begin to rejoice. Because it's true. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's confidence, you see, is in Jesus and that gospel, and nothing, nothing can touch him or that. So finally, he says, my brothers, and he's not finished the letter in chapter 3, verse 1, but finally, he says, finally, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Jason, that's, in a sense, our last word to you, rejoice in the Lord, because nothing, nothing, nothing can touch you if you do that. And it's a great word for us too, isn't it? Stand fast and rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the apostles' strength and convictions and how convicted he is to guard the true gospel. The gospel that says, do not place any store in who you are, your background, good as these things are. The gospel that says, do not place any store in religion. 
Do not place any store in what you do, but place it all in the Lord Jesus Christ, who did it all that we might plead his death and resurrection and his righteousness when we stand before him on the day of judgment. And may we proclaim that gospel and no other while we have breath to do so, whether in China or in Edinburgh. And we ask that in Jesus' name.